Let me ask you to bow now as we come to the scripture. Let's prepare our minds again by way of praying uh, to hear from God. Pray with me. Father, now as we come to your word, I pray for me, for us, that we would have ears to hear. Father, I pray you take away whatever distractions may exist uh, in us, uh, around us. um, And God, help us to hear from you, to get it to understand that we may worship you. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to Acts in chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. I want to begin reading with verse 16 and read through the end of the chapter. I don't know that I'm going to have time to, to, to apply this in every way I'd like to, so we may have to do a continuation for next Sunday, but at least I want to begin. Um, so we'll read beginning with Acts Uh, Chapter 17, verse 16, please. Hear the word of God. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, And in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the uh, Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the um, Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own prophets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image uh, formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Arapegite, and a woman named Damaris, and 
others with them. Now, I remind you as, as we come to this text, this ancient text, um, that we do so because we believe that God has superintended its writing. When we come to the scripture, it's not simply out of tradition for us or, or simply to read and then to leave because we have another agenda we want to pursue. But, but we come, as you know, to the scripture because we believe it's God-breathed. We believe it's from God. It's authored by Him, uh, that's spoken by Him, that we're to, to listen to it. And as we do, we're listening to God and we're to trust in it because God has given it to us and we're to follow Follow it. So I think uh, the, perhaps the most straightforward way through this particular passage is just to ask these four questions. Uh, the first, this, and that is, you know, where are we uh, in this book of Acts? And then secondly, as Paul, we find him in Athens. Uh, what did he see there? What were his impressions of Athens? And thirdly, then what did that do in him? And then fourthly, uh, what's it do in us? So just those four questions to, to move our way through it and then to move our way, I trust, to the table that's, that's before us. Now, we know that, that in, the, in the book of Acts that we're in the midst of what is called Paul's second missionary journey. As we begin the book of Acts, as you know, uh, we're anticipating because of the word of Jesus that we're going to see the gospel go from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. I mean, that's what he says will be true of his disciples, that they're going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. We, we saw it move out of Jer- Ju- uh, Jerusalem. We saw it go to Judea, to Samaria, and, and now it's going to the ends of the earth. And so beginning in chapter 13, we found Paul being set apart with a man named Barnabas, to go on a journey, to, to go around and to, to preach, really. And in their preaching, they established churches in various places. By the end of chapter 14, they came back to Syria and Antioch, from which they had started. And, 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 and so that was their first missionary journey. We had a little interlude in chapter 15, where Paul and elders and other apostles gathered into Jerusalem to talk about some theological matters and to apply it very practically in the life of the church, a very significant issue about, about how it is that one would enter into relationship with God, whether that was simply through Jesus, if you will, or if that meant through Jesus, but yet the Old Testament law as well. And the conclusion was it's simply through Jesus, through faith in him, because he's the fulfiller of all that came before him, of all that was in the Old Testament. So he's the one, uh, the focus of everyone's attention. Uh, And then in chapter 16, we find that Paul has a new partner, a guy by the name of Silas. Paul and Barnabas having gone separate ways over a bit of a dispute, which is rather Difficult for us to think about Paul having a dispute, but it's refreshing as well to see the honesty of the Bible, that it simply lays out that these, these men were not infallible, uh, and uh, they didn't always agree with one another, perhaps didn't even always know the direct leading of God. But, but the, So the scripture is very honest about that. And, and so Barnabas takes John Mark, and they go in one direction, and Paul is now companioned with a man by the name of Silas, who is known as a prophet. And they go off. And in their going off, uh, it's their desire, as you remember, to, to revisit the churches that Paul and Barnabas had planted or had started before. And, and God directs them in a little different way. And they find their, their, their path then being moved to Macedonia. And uh, so Paul and Silas meet up with a young man named Timothy. He joins them. They move along. They go to a place called Thessalonica, then a place called Berea, and they're sort of uh, moved out of there because there's some opposition. Uh, Paul then moves on by himself to Athens, and so that's where we find ourselves. 
He's in this second missionary journey. He's still on this journey as we know it. Uh, but he's alone. That is, he's not with Silas or with Timothy or any of his other companions. And he's in this great city of Athens waiting for Silas and Timothy to join him. So that's where we are. Now, what he sees in Athens is rather amazing. I don't know about you. I know some of you have been to Athens. You've told me about your trip and so forth. It sounds exciting and wonderful. And, uh, and, and you've told me great things. But your reaction, not to pick on you, was different than Paul's. Now, Athens, in the days of Paul, was a great city. It wasn't as great as it had been some centuries before, but still it was a great city. It was a great city known for its, its politics, a great city known for its architecture, a great city known for its literature, a great city known for its art, a great city known for its philosophers, a great city known for its education and intellect and all of that. It was still a great city in all of that. And there was Paul alone. Now, I don't know what you would do if you were stuck in Athens by yourself, but I suspect at least I would do the touristy things. And I would go around and see as much of it as I could. And my sense about me is that I would probably be quite impressed with everything that I saw. The difference between Paul and me is that he was quite depressed with everything that he saw. Notice, he says in verse 16, his spirit was provoked within him. Uh, That means that he was deeply distressed by what he saw. Because what he saw in the midst of the architecture, what he saw in the midst of the art, what he saw in the midst of the culture of philosophy and intellect and politics and all of that, was he saw that it was full of idols. Um, And it was. I mean, uh, there was this great pantheon, this great number of gods. Uh, In fact, as will come, they even had an altar to an unknown god. They wanted to cover all their bases. They gave names to all the gods they could possibly think to give names to and and all of that. And just in case they missed a few, they had altars to unknown ones. Just in case there were other gods hovering around there. They didn't want to offend anybody. And so, so they had even this altar to an unknown god. And so Paul would walk around in the midst of the architecture, in the midst of the art, in the midst of the literature, in the midst of the philosophy, in the midst of all that. And what he would see is sculpted beautifully painted beautifully, artistically rendered well, all of these gods. And in the midst of everything else, it just simply got to him. And it says that he was provoked in his spirit, which is very important, a very important part of that. It wasn't just simply an anger towards, it didn't just rile his feathers, if you will, but something spiritually was going on. If you have an NIV, it says he was distressed. There was a sadness he was provoked in this. That's what he would remember. So many gods in, in Athens that they're, um, even the commentators on, on, on their culture in their day said that if you walk down the streets in Athens, you're more likely to run into a god than a man. Uh, they were just all over the place. And that's what F- Paul saw, uh, a city full of idols. This little word distressed, this little word provoked in his spirit, Interestingly, is the same concept, same roots of a word used in the Old Testament about God. About God when people were worshipping idols. And it's attached when used of God to this idea of God that he is jealous. You might remember on a particular occasion, God said about himself, my name is 
jealous. Now for us, jealousy, being a jealous person, has sort of a negative connotation. But in the context of God, it's used righteously. It's used rightly to describe him. One, one, one writer, John Stott, puts it like this. He says, Now jealousy is the resentment of rivals. And whether it's good or evil depends on whether the rival has any business to be there. All right? So he's saying there's a good jealousy and a bad jealousy. Uh, jealousy is this, this resentment of a rival or a competitor, or somebody being in your life, or being in a place where you don't think they ought to be. Um, to be jealous of someone who threatens to outshine us in beauty, brains, or sport, is sinful. Now, I would say it's common. <laughs> He's nicer than I. Uh, but it, it's sinful in that sense. We do it, but it's sinful. And here's why. He says, because we cannot claim a monopoly of talent in those areas. In other words... I, I'm not God. I'm not the one who says I have to, 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 to be the tops in all of these things. There's certainly room for others. Um, if, on the other hand, a third party enters a marriage, the jealousy of the injured person who's being displaced is righteous because the intruder has no right to be there. In other words, if you are married and there is someone who is sort of moving in on your spouse, then there's a certain measure of jealousy that's appropriate there. It's, it's right. You say, no, you shouldn't be here. This is my relationship. This is my husband. This is my wife. And so in that sense, uh, it's appropriate. It's the same with God who says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. That's from Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8. Our Creator and Redeemer has a right to our exclusive allegiance, and it is, uh, and if jealous, we if we transfer it to anyone else or anything else. Moreover, the people of God who love God's name should share in His jealousy for it. So the pain which Paul felt in Athens was due neither to bad temper, uh, nor to pity for the Athenians' ignorance, nor even uh, for fear of their eternal salvation. It was due, rather, to his abhorrence of idolatry, which aroused within him deep stirring of jealousy for the name of God, as he saw human beings so depraved as to be giving to idols uh, the honor and glory which were due to the one living in true God alone. His whole soul was revol revolted at the sight of his city given over to idolatry. You see, what was going on in Paul was something spiritual. What was going on in Paul was not simply an anger at the Athenian people. In some sense, he didn't hold them responsible. At least he didn't hold them responsible for that. They were ignorant. But, but it still distressed him to be in that culture, to be in that environment. Going around Athens for Paul wasn't a fun time because every time he did it was reminded that God's glory was being debased, that God's glory was being degraded, that God's glory was being besmirched, uh, if you will. And so the response of Paul to all of that, this distress, was that it moved him to do something. And it moved him to reason with the people there. It moved him to reason with people in the synagogue. It moved him to reason with people in the marketplace. Uh, he didn't go after them, as we might expect, in some sort of prophetic tone. Now, he was prophetic in his reasoning, but, but sometimes we would expect a prophetic tone for him to stand up on the street corners and scream and yell at people, how can you do this? How can you worship these idols? Uh, you should glorify the true and living God. 
It's interesting, I think, that by and large, Paul reserves his prophetic tone for people in the church. If you read Galatians chapter 1, you read a, a, a prophetic tone where Paul speaks forcefully and directly to church people. How can you abandon the gospel? But he's not in that context. He's in the context of a group of unbelievers who are ignorant, who don't know any better really. And so there's two different types of people, two different places in a sense to which he goes, which describes us. One is in the synagogue where they, he wants to give them more information. He wants to bring them up to speed about what is in the Old Testament and how that applies to Jesus. And we don't have great detail here in this passage about how he does that. We suspect he does it in a similar way that he's done it before where he walks through the Old Testament story, if you will, the history of redemption from Genesis on through, and he shows how Jesus is the Christ. He shows how Jesus is the one that the prophets spoke of. He shows how Jesus is this very Lord of glory. And, and so I, I suspect he walked through that. And then he finds himself in the marketplace and, and in ancient uh, Athens. Uh, that would be the place where people would gather and people would gather there to do all kinds of things, to buy and sell things, and, and to talk. For us at the university, it might be at the Union. Uh, it might be for us downtown at Signs of Life. Uh, for, uh, uh, it, it may be uh, simply the, the public square. It may be a pub, who knows, in certain communities where people gather to talk. And so Paul would go there, and he would, he would talk, and he found various philosophies being talked about. There were the Epicureans, who were the pleasure seekers, if you will, the Epicureans who didn't believe that, 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 that the world was created by any personal god, but there were gods all over the place, but, but they really didn't interact at all with human beings. They believed that when this life was over, the soul was gone, that was it, that was the end. Uh, so their view was, escape whatever suffering comes your way, because there's no reason to put off any gratification, because this life is it. And so, so they pursued pleasure. That was the, the sort of the, 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 the understanding of the Epicurean philosophy of life. Uh, to whenever possible, escape suffering, pursue pleasure. The, the Stoics, on the other hand, were different. They, they, they saw life as coming at them from the gods as kind of a fatalistic kind of a thing. And, and you couldn't really control any of that, and every life had, had suffering in it. And, and so basically, you, you simply needed to deal with that the best you could. And so the high virtue for the Stoic was duty, to live out your life, even in the midst of the suffering, and even in the midst of the difficulty, to do the right things. So that was the Stoic. So Paul would discuss with them uh, about Jesus and the resurrection, and clearly they misunderstood him because they thought he was talking about foreign deities, not just a foreign deity, but foreign deities. They thought he was talking about various gods. Some have posited that they thought Jesus was the male god because the word for resurrection in Greek can also be used as a name for a woman. And so they thought, well, he must have a female god and a male god, and so he has foreign deities. In fact, they, they called him a babbler, which the literal understanding of that word babbler is a seed picker. Uh, literally, uh, in other words, like a bird who would go from one field and get a few seeds, and another bird and get a few seeds, and another bird and get a few seeds, and, 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 and basically, figuratively, it meant he was a plagiarist. It meant he would go and get a little bit of this from one, and a little bit of this from another, and a little bit of this from a third, and put it all together and come up with some sort of religious philosophy, and, and that's the best they could figure about Paul. 
And so here he was. And they, they had a good time talking with him because they just liked to talk. But there was one place, the council, that would evaluate all the talk in the city to see what could really go on and what was really true, what could really be accepted. accepted. And it was at the Areopagus, uh, which literally translated is the, is the Hill of Mars or Mars Hill in Greek. And so some of your versions may have that or you may hear that expression, Mars Hill. And it was a place they took Paul. And Paul would stand before the council and that's where he presented his case. Now he presents his case quite differently than he presented his case at the synagogue. He doesn't quote the Old Testament scripture, but the concepts are still there. He isn't abandoning the faith. It's still the same truth. It's just expressed perhaps in a way for them to understand it. And notice kind of uh, how Paul presents this and and kind of the non-negotiables as as Paul's working through this. First in verse 22, uh, he mentions to them that they're very religious. Now, I don't think that was a slam on them, nor do I think he was just sort of trying to butter, butter them up. He was just making a statement. I see that you're interested, one of the things you're interested in is God stuff. This, the, the worship of God. In fact, so interested, so concerned are you to cover all your bases in this area of, 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 of religion that you even have an altar to the unknown gods. Just in case, again, that you've missed one, you're, you're, you're going to have a, an altar. So you don't want to, you want to cover all of your bases. So, so I understand that. And you get a sense even that he's saying, so we have something in common. We both have this, this, this interest in things religious. And so that's what I'm here to talk about. I think in our own culture, we can say very, real, uh, very honestly and realistic to people, I notice you're a spiritual kind of person. You think of transcendence. You want to get beyond yourself in some way. People have this sense these days in our own culture of spirituality. Now, in the same way, it's unknown to them. They don't really know what they're getting at because the only real spirituality is that of the Holy Spirit. But there's a sense that, okay, that's really true. So Paul says, I see that you're religious and, and, and I see that you have this altar to, to the unknown God. Now, I'm going to reveal to you that which you don't know about. It must have really troubled Paul, again, in the same kind of spiritual way, to realize that for them, God was still unknown. He, no doubt, could relate in his own life to that kind of ignorance. I mean, he thought he knew, but he didn't. He thought he had it right about God, but he didn't have it right about God. And he knew that uh, the only way to get it right about God is for God to reveal himself. I I think when Paul writes Romans, he, he has this sense that that within us is, is some kind of God sense. But because of sin, it's perverted. Because of sin, it's diluted. Because of, of sin, it malfunctions. And, and we don't get it right. And notice how he puts it in, in, in Romans, uh, in chapter 1. He writes, verse 19, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely the eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that they're without excuse. So he says, there's this, this sense of, uh, of God in the midst of this, um, in the midst of people's lives. And then in chapter 2, in verse 
14 in Romans, he puts it like this. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse, or even excuse them, on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secret men, secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Again, you get this sense, and it's, it's, it's not... It's, it's, it's not fully developed in them because of sin, but, but this sense that human beings have this sense about who God is. In fact, one writer puts it like this. He said, whenever you speak to men in the name of Christ, unseen instincts deep within them are reinforcing your words. See, we have this awareness of God. And so as we speak to God about people, it may be, as Paul says in Romans 1.18, that they're suppressing it with every ounce of their being. But rest assured, the image of God in them, though it's shattered, isn't utterly obliterated. And so there's this sense of God about us. And so, so Paul brings, I think, this in his own thinking as he's sharing with these people. You're very religious, he says. And then he goes on to talk about God to them, and to reveal God to them. Verse 24, he says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He's saying, listen, this God is the creator. So he cuts against the philosophies of the day. He's not afraid to do that. He just simply proclaims to them that God is creator. That's the way God is, is shown to us through the whole scripture. He doesn't go back and quote Genesis. He doesn't go back and quote Isaiah. He doesn't go back and quote the Psalms that God is creator. He just simply proclaims it to them because it's true. And then he takes it a logical step. If God indeed is the creator, then clearly he doesn't live in places that we build for him. How silly would that be? He doesn't need us to see for him. He made the eye. He doesn't need us to hear for him. Because he made the ear. He doesn't need us to do stuff for him. Because he made hands and arms. I mean, he made us. We're dependent upon him. He's not dependent upon us. He's different than we are. He's outside of the creation. And he's real. And yet he's concerned about the creation that he's made. So that's who this God is. And Paul says, it's, it's silly. For you to think that you can build a temple for him to live an altar that he can he can that can bear his resemblance. You see, people really don't like to think about God as the creator. Yeah, I know all the debates. Well, that's a stretch. I'm not that smart. I know some of the debates of evolution, creationism, and all of that, and that isn't my point. Because you see, there's a spiritual thing behind all of those discussions, whether the science is good or whether the science isn't good. And that is that if God is creator, then there is something in us that knows that he's our owner. When someone creates something, what they've created is theirs. And that which they've created belongs to the creator. And that's what rubs against sinners. We don't want to belong to anyone. Because we know once we do, then that one who owns us is the one who is to direct our lives. And we'd rather direct our own lives. Now, we want to use the Creator as much as we possibly can. That is to say, if we need Him for breath, fine. All right? If we need Him for health, fine. 
If we need him to provide an earth upon which we live that's relatively pleasant, fine. But after that, leave me alone, right? Till I get into some trouble and then I may call upon you because I want to make you, right? We want to make him. That's the whole idea of idolatry. It's us controlling God. It's us making a God that we can fit and we can design and we can own. But Paul's saying it isn't like that. You've got it on its ear. God is the one who's made us. He isn't served by us. He simply doesn't need us. All the serving of the gods that you do, out of superstition or for whatever reason, all, the, all that serving that you do is completely unnecessary. Because he simply doesn't need anything that we have. But we need everything from him. Verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So he says, God's not only the creator, not only the one who sustains everything, we need him, he doesn't need us, but he's also the one who rules over everything. And he puts human beings where he desires to put human beings, on the face of the earth. And here's the purpose, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. And when you get this sense of feeling their way toward him, he's saying, the purpose of human beings is to seek after God, to know Him. But there's something that blinds us, so the best we can do at this point in time is sort of feel our way towards Him. And he, in, in a very nice, kind of kind way, Paul's saying to the Athenians, that's what you're doing. You're as close to God as a blind person is in trying to find something by feeling, which means you're not very close. God's way closer than, than, than you can even imagine, than you can even think. Because you're feeling on your own way, but, but, but you're missing him. In him we move and live and have our being. And he quotes their own poets. He says, for indeed we are his offspring. He says, you know, there's this sense of God in the midst of your own culture. But even your own poets say that, that there's something about God as creator. That we're his offspring. So they've even said that to you. And so verse 29 then logically says, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by art or imagination. In other words, we don't make him. But then verse 30, The times of ignorance God overlooked. He said there was an age when God had re revealed himself primarily in Israel and not to the ends of the earth. Now, when he says that God ignored in this, this ignorance, it doesn't mean that they wouldn't be judged for not trusting, not believing, not living to glorify God. But he said, there was a time of ignorance then, but now that ignorance is over because I'm going to bring the truth to you. I'm going to, I'm going to blast the ignorance right out from under you. But now he commands people everywhere to repent, that is to change everything about their lives, how they think about God. Because he is fixed a day on which he'll judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He says, listen, there's one who's come as Savior and judge. And he's been resurrected from the dead. That is, there's more to life than this. He's been resurrected from the dead. 
And in being resurrected from the dead, he's now seated above everything. He's Lord of all. And as Lord of all, he's judged. There's real judgment to come. And so now repent and turn. Now, we don't have everything that Paul said here, obviously. My sense is it, would, you know, it takes a minute and a half to read this. And my guess is he talked for a long time and filled in all the gaps and filled in all the stuff. He doesn't even mention the name of Jesus. So you got you sense that he would down the road in this, that this is, this is Jesus. Now, I want to make just one point today from this as we think through. And the point is, 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 is really this. Are we as sensitive to God's glory in the midst of our culture, in the midst of our church, in the midst of our lives, as Paul was? Henry Martin, who was a, um, a missionary in India in the early part of the 19th century, um, one of the missionaries who you read about and realize that once he got to India, he only lived six years, died at the age of 31. And so we often scratch our heads wondering about those kinds of things. But then you read stuff like God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. And so you trust that the boundary of Henry Martin's dwelling place uh, was England and then India for six years in the early 1800s. Um, he tells this story from a uh, discussion he had with a Muslim. It goes like this. Mirza Siad Ali told me of a story that was being told in honor of a victory over the Russians. The sentiment was that Prince Abbas Mirza had killed so many Christians that Christ from the fourth heaven took hold of Muhammad's skirt to entreat him to desist. So you get the, you get the story that was told. The story that was told, there was a battle and, 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 the, uh, and so many Christians were killed in the midst of that battle, that the depiction is Christ grabbing hold of Muhammad's skirt to saying, stop, don't kill any more of my people. So Henry Martin says this about that. He said, I was cut to the soul at this blasphemy. Mirza Siad Ali perceived that I was considerably disordered and asked what it was that was offensive. I told him that I could not endure existence if Jesus was not glorified. It would be held to me if he were dis always to be dishonored. Well, he was astonished again and asked, why? And I replied, if anyone plucked out your eyes, there is no saying why you feel pain. It's a feeling. It's because I'm one with Christ that I am thus dreadfully wounded. He said, if somebody plucks out your eye and you scream, nobody says, why is he screaming? Because everybody knows why you're screaming. Somebody just plucked out your eye. And he says, well, when Christ is blasphemed, why would anyone ask, why am I distressed? Because you see, I'm as one with Christ as I am with my eye. And the question for me, <laughs> the question for us, is can we become so dull that there's no distressing? Now, please, Paul had a special calling. He went to Athens not to be a tourist. He went to Athens not to take in the culture. He went to Athens to be as an apostle, to, to spread the gospel and all of that. But, but, but 
even that aside, it shouldn't it be in our DNA, shouldn't it be part of who we are, to be overwhelmingly concerned about the glory of Christ. And yet, we're often concerned about our own glory. Recently, there was an actress, I think she's an actress, who received a Grammy for her television show. And when she received the Grammy, she blasphemed the name of Christ. Something to the effect that she wasn't going to thank Jesus for this award because he had nothing to do with it. And then went on to say some other things as well. It was amazing to me the response of the Christian community. Much of the response of the Christian community was, she better apologize to us. Because if she had said this about Muhammad, or if she had said this about Buddha, or if she had said this about any other sort of religious figure, then there would be a great outcry and she'd have to make a public apology. She should have to apologize to us. And it dawned on me that our concern was for us. Whereas we perhaps should be weeping for the glory of Christ and trying to reason with her. She might be quite unreasonable. We're trying to reason with her about the glory of Christ. And I wonder if, if, if we're so much a part of the idolatry of our day, I wonder if I'm such a part of the idolatry of our day that I don't even see it. That I walk around and idols are all around me. And I just sort of walk by them and polish them as I go. And there are some easy to pick on. I mean, we can pick on our occupations that define us and dictate our lives to which we sell our souls if we're not careful. There's sports that we use to dictate how we live our lives and direct our paths and that which we find our delight rather than perhaps in Christ. Um, there's sexual identity where people define themselves by their own sexual preference and that directs them and leads them and defines their life. Our families can be idols to us where they are our identity, that we find everything in them, that we define ourselves by our family and our family directs our paths as opposed to Christ directing our family life and how that is. Freedom in the United States is a huge if I could give a social commentary, idol for us. It may be the very thing that ultimately kills us because we love freedom so much we can't make a law that's moral if it restricts freedom as we understand freedom to be. We may be straightjacketed by the idol of freedom, thinking it to be the highest virtue and the highest value. Christ is blasphemed everywhere. And again, I think we have to be careful when these things happen, when idols occur in our culture, that we don't lash out against people per se in the culture because we need to come and reason with them and share with them and to help obliterate the ignorance that's there. Because the humility that should be in us is that we too, without a revelation by the Spirit of God changing our hearts, would think the same or worse. I know myself reasonably not well, not really well, because I, I can't, can't handle that. But I know myself reasonably well. And there are times when I sit down and I think, what would I be like, given all the characteristics that I know of myself, 
especially those that still have yet to be sanctified. What would I be like if it weren't for Christ? What, would I, what kind of a person would I be? And, and, and it's certainly no better than anybody else's out there. So that's, you see, the humility that we see. So it isn't so much that we're angry at the people, but we see these things, and there should be a certain measure of sadness in us. One of my mentors, by way of writing, Martin Lloyd-Jones, once, once was asked if Christians can have fun. And he said, yes, but just not a lot. Uh, and by that he meant that there's always this, this tinge, wherever we are, where we see ungodliness in us or around us, that, 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 that tempers, in some sense, all of that. And then he went on to say, but there's great joy in holiness. There's great joy in Christ. So we know great joy, great even happiness by following after Him. But we do it in the context of a world where He's blasphemed, where He's not glorified, where His glory is debased. And so that's always in us. That's always troublesome. That's always distressing. And so we smile and cry at the same time this side of glory. John Stott said, that perhaps we don't reason as Paul reasoned because we don't feel the way he felt. And my prayer for me, for us, is that we would feel as he felt. But even as he shared with them about this judgment, uh, it wasn't in the sense, or shouldn't have been, couldn't have been, in the sense of utter despair. Because when he says that this one who's who is resurrected from the dead has been appointed on a particular day, day to judge us, that's the best news of all. I don't know if you've been following, you shouldn't, this isn't all that important, the Michael Vick story, a uh, football player who's in jail because of dog fighting and killing dogs and all of that. The big buzz yesterday, when I, the other day when I was in the barbershop getting my hair cut, was that the judge that was appointed to sit his case, hear his case, is a dog lover. So everybody was saying, oh, Michael Vick's in big trouble. Be better than if you got a judge who didn't like animals. What's the good news for us? The one who's our judge died for us. So on the one hand, we hear judgment and should shiver. But on the other hand, to realize this one who was raised from the dead, that's the one. And here's how Paul puts it in Romans in chapter 8. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Wow. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. This very one who is our judge, defends us all at the same time. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake, we're being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He said, no matter how bad it is, nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. 
knowing all these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I think Paul felt the way he felt because he knew the glory of Christ. And he knew the righteousness of God. And he knew the judgment was coming. The one who was appointed as judge was the very one who had died for him. And thus the case was closed, for there was nothing no longer against him, for Christ had taken it. And I think as Paul walked around and he saw people worshipping anything other than Christ, it distressed him that they didn't know what he knew. It distressed him that the work of Christ was going, was going unloved, untrusted, unappropriated. And it moved him to reason and to say, look to Christ. Let's pray. Father, I stand before this table, uh, this very table that is the table of the Lord. This very table that speaks to us of this one who's come, who's lived and died and rose again. This very one who, because he's resurrected, has ascended to this great place and now is Lord of all. Even this one who shall come to judge the living and the dead. And Father, we give you thanks that for all who trust in him, they'll be judged by him, forgiven. So Father, we give you thanks. And I pray even in these moments that you would set apart this bread and this juice in a way that will remind us of what Christ has done. In a way that will declare to us his death knowing that he will come and in that coming that knowing that all who trust in him will be completely, utterly redeemed belonging to him blessed by him for all eternity Father work that in us and even as you do give us a glimpse of the glory of Christ let us savor that glory and Father, I pray that everything else will pale in significance to it. That nothing will draw us more than the glory of Christ. And that everything that we see that dishonors that glory, degrades that glory, will cause us sadness just by the very nature of our connection with Christ. And that it will work in us to cause us to glorify him through our lives and through our speech. This, I pray, even as we come to this table. In Jesus' name, amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, as we know, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples, and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, he gave this cup to his disciples and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And the apostle says, As often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It shouldn't frighten us that he's come and he's coming again. 
in his first coming, he didn't come to judge. He came to die. In his second coming, he comes to judge. But because he died in his first coming, for all who trust in him, he's the judge who intercedes. He's the judge who takes all accusations. He's the judge who pardons. Nothing's like that. We mustn't let anything creep into our lives that takes that place. So Jesus invites to this table all those who trust in him, all those who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope except in the very sovereign mercy of God. We believe and depend upon Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel as the savior of sinners who desire therefore to live in such a way that brings him glory. That's true for you. Let me invite you to come. These two sections down the aisle to my left. These two sections down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread. Dip it in the cup. And as you do, realize that he's the one who died for us. Our judge. Our savior. Please come.